Welcome back, friends. This is your pal, Jeff, and this is another episode in a series that I'm doing of retractions. Retractions and reflections back on things that I had done earlier on in my life and my academic writing. And uh, today, I am interested in readdressing something that is a little bit more recently um, put out there, and that is my Trembeth lecture. And that was Standing Boldly, How Lutheran Epistemology Makes True Academic Liberty Possible. Uh, and this was uh, based on research funded by the uh, Trembeth uh, fund, which was something that uh, allowed for professors at Concordia University, Irvine, where I was, to have a, an extra sabbatical, a funded sabbatical. And that was in uh, addition to an earlier sabbatical semester that I'd had. I really needed it. It was at a very pivotal time in my life, going through a lot of um, moments of thinking and rethinking my place within church-related higher education. And, uh, uh, you know, yet the irony was, here was this deeply church-connected fund, and uh, here I was uh, tasked with having a sabbatical, but the the parameters were I needed to do some research into something related to the Lutheran Confessions. Now, the Lutheran Confessions uh, in many ways, uh, had come to feel like constraints in my 21st century experience, Con constraints on my own intellectual freedom, my thriving at a university, uh, or lack thereof. And so I am not unaware of the strange irony of finding freedom from confessional Lutheranism by being given the gracious opportunity to study confessional theology, confessional Lutheranism, um, and I think that's the best possible thing that any institution or religious community can can have, and that is kind of like in indigenous cultures, these moments where a young person is able to go out and discover things that are beyond the pale, things that are um, maybe generally forbidden to consider, but then through that process having that person going on a spirit quest or something come back and provide insights that are actually healthy and perhaps like life-saving for that that very community because you know communities survive by continuity uh, and traditions and there's nothing wrong with that but there are also times when those traditions that once served us become uh, ways to keep us bound when we could otherwise be thriving and, and free so that's what this show's really about, but ultimately um, the, the process of getting across what I'm, I'm trying to express about these changes in my own thinking um, is going to center around this, uh, this article I wrote, this, this, uh, really this, this speech uh, that I had to write, a paper I had to give at the end of my semester, and um, I want to talk to you on this particular episode about what I was trying to do and will leave it to you to figure out whether it was effective, but at least you can hear my heart and uh, what I think about it these days. Thanks for hanging with us. We'll be back to the other type of show pretty soon. Stacy's uh, gearing up. She's been doing a lot of heavy work and had just driven down to drop off our baby at University of Santa Cruz. So she's back on real soon. But for now, settle in, enjoy yourself. If this is the kind of thing that's up your alley, let's go. Full. 
All right. I actually love, I want to say, I kind of love the playfulness of this piece. And I enjoyed the, the kind of mini epiphany uh, experience that I had when I finally kind of cracked what I wanted to do with this piece. And again, I want to reset to set this up. Stacy and I were given the beautiful opportunity of getting away from our religious academic institution. And the opportunity came through the charitable donations of the Carolyn and, uh, and Henry Trembeth uh, fund, this foundation. And the idea was for scholars to have extra time to uh, research and then uh, come up with insights and present those insights to others related to the Lutheran confessions. Now, if you don't know this world, um, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. There are some evangelicals in America that want to say all they've got is the Bible. There's no, nothing else really that's, that's coming into the, to, to the mix here. Um, and this is very different, they would say, from the Roman Catholics who have a pope and a magisterium. And, and therefore, if they have a, a statement of faith at all, it might be something like the six bullet points of the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, that just kind of states what they're about, you know, what, what, what kind of Christians they are. But um, if you go to the Reformed tradition or the Lutheran tradition, you come across a, a sort of evangelical that is confessional. That is, that there are these, these texts that were written generally in the 16th century that define their take on theology, their interpretation of scripture, and that these become really, really important. Now, not all Lutherans care about the confessions the same way, but in the tradition I was in, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, uh, the confessions were really, really important, and some people would, um, would scoff and say that these confessions became like a paper pope, right? So you got rid of the pope, but now you've got this, like, non-living document. It, it cannot flex anymore or fluctuate. It is something that was written down in the 16th century, and we have to stick with it to this day. So, in any case, I'm trying to find a way to justify my research and also to allow the research to do something helpful for my own thinking. You know, I mean, I wasn't very interested in, in even the prospect of being in beautiful places with Stacy in our truck camper around the country, but writing about um, something I just didn't care about at all. And it, and it pretty early on came to me that what I wanted to do was to use this as an opportunity to study the ways in which um, n not the words that came out in the documents of the confessions, um, that th that wouldn't be my main focus, but what kind of epistemology or philosophy of knowledge, um, or we might say religious epistemology, if you need to, um, what kind of epistemology was behind the confessions in the first place? What philosophy of the individual's empowerment to make pronouncements, and specifically in this case, um, princes? Because the confessions were were documents that articulated not only what church people were saying, not just the theologians, but they were articulating what uh, these German princes in particular, 
in the case of the Lutheran confessions and, and other magistrates, what they believed or what they were standing on uh, and the principles they were standing on. And it, it occurred to me that even though this, this, this artifact from the past, these, this, in the case of Lutherans, this whole book, the book of uh, Concord, which includes all these confessions and confessional documents, that even if I came to the conclusion that these are no longer as helpful for understanding the whole world as they once were, isn't it amazing and beautiful that they were created in the first place? In other words, what kind of boldness and daring and self-determination and genuine care, what, what, what about that was behind the formation of these documents. And that's when I started to realize that I could find a way to stand up against some of the things I found problematic within my religious world using the tools of the people who created it in the first place, right? Like, in other words, maybe I could reform my own relationship with this church uh, conversation, using the tools that empowered the original architects to boldly create this new movement. And, um, and I don't think in doing that I was being uh, duplicitous. Uh, I, I think that's, that, that was really an insight that I found helpful. So uh, what, what I've come to, to see is that even though I was liberated myself in the very process of writing this article. That is, it was through writing this article that I realized that ultimately I needed to make a move in my own life and I needed to take risks personally and professionally. And I realized this at the conclusion of, of writing this stuff and, um, and realized it at the conclusion of writing this stuff also that I needed to uproot and, and get moving up to Portland. And so it, you wouldn't see it, though, if you, if you read the text itself, because I am attempting to be provocative, and I was trying to use the language of my tradition to, to subvert it in some ways, right? But I wanted to do this in a way that was honoring and not um, disingenuous, right? So I'm not sure I pulled it off, but um, I think it's helpful for me to just kind of get off my chest, like, what, what I was thinking about this. So... Let me just read the first part, because if I didn't write it this way, it maybe would have been easier for me to just, just kind of move on from it. But I write in the abstract to the, the, the paper, to, the, um, to, my, to my talk, um, quote, if an academically free space is possible in society, I, I, by the way, I'm outside again with the beautiful wind on a beautiful day, the dog's out here with me. Um, if an academically free space is possible in society. It can only exist at a Christian university. Now that statement, if, if you look at it on its face value, is, um, is something that may be true or false, but is certainly making me suspect to, you know, folks that uh, don't agree. And then, of course, you get to the point where I'm at now, where I have come to say that not only have I ghosted church, I believe that ultimately the project of church-related education um, that is, the idea of a Christian university is n not tenable, but not tenable as it, is, as, is, as it is stated in the current context. What I was going for, if this makes any sense to you, is kind of 
adjacent to the idea that Slavoj Žižek has of being an atheist Christian. That is um, recognizing in the absurdity of the, the, the death of Jesus something really important for overcoming ideology. Now, I wasn't going to say that straight up. And I also realized that, um, that that wouldn't be apparent immediately. But that's what I was meaning. Um, and I was not trying to privilege either a theistic version of it or an atheistic version of it. I mean that there is something about the stance of Jesus that is peculiar in the history of thought. And that is, while he is seen as the founder of a religion, he did not try to found a religion, right? He was a Jewish kid that also wanted to transcend uh, or to fulfill the spirit of his tradition in a way that was liberatory, that was freeing to people, and specifically that um, uh, freed people like the Galileans in a way that would decentralize uh, or deinstitutionalize this thing. It would disconnect it from money and it would disconnect it from empire. Right. These are things that a lot of my friends that are radical and uh, not interested in religion at all will will agree with. Right. This idea that decolonizing our minds is really important for our own mental health, let alone for the health of our societies. And that in a way, what Jesus was trying to do was was this work of decolonization of the mind and of uh, and of communities. So. Um, now, he, I, I believe that he wanted to do this in a nonviolent way, but he was very much a radical political figure uh, to the extent that he was rejecting these um, ways of collaborating with Rome, but he, but he rejected it by having a, a stance of, of not warring against them in a terrorist kind of way like the, like the zealots, but rather in a way that they kind of opted out of the system altogether. Now, why is that important? If there were to be a university that was committed to the way of Jesus, by which I mean absolutely committed to rejecting money, power, and glory, then that is a place I would say is the only place for me as far as university level goes. I will say as an aside, even if you created that, it would be very hard for me to imagine ever being pried away from the deep, deep joy I've been experiencing uh, watching um, middle school kids wake up to existence and find even little glimpses of their true selves. And I, I just, I couldn't be more overjoyed by, by that work. But if you go to the question of what the university could be and what, where I could have fit in, um, or, you know, could someday, um, it would be a place that rejects money, power, and glory. And that means it is not a servant of the state. So I'm not interested in a, a state institute working for or, or finding value in a state institution unless the state institution guaranteed within its own structures that people could be free to undo the state status quo, right? So that's a hard thing to do. Um, it cannot be controlled by the state and it cannot be controlled by a religious organization, it certainly is possible to have the freedom of spiritual ideas and expression, but it cannot be controlled by a religious organization because, as I've said before, um, paradoxically, um, with the exception of things like tenure and um, 
and, and, and sabbaticals to go investigate the stuff, you know, which ultimately helped me to deconstruct it. Uh, but, um, but the idea is you can't have the state running the university, which it tends to do all around the country here in America. And you can't have the church running it, which it tends to do all around in America. In other words, the two greatest resources or the, the, the two greatest um, types of higher education that we have in terms of their significance and money and, and, and footprint are church and state. But if, in fact, Jesus was not all that interested in following the, the lead of church or state in, in, the, in the way that we would think of it, like the compromising religious elites or the uh, politicians that, or the, the state folks, or pure capitalist money, right, where universities are funded by corporations that want those universities to create things not for the commonwealth, not for the public good, but uh, just to make more money in the pharmaceutical or nuclear military technological world, right? I guess what I'm getting to is universities are friggin' dangerous. They're sometimes good dangerous because they always have allowed the arts kind of people to get in there and, and, and serve as the kind of fool card or the joker to kind of mix things up. But at the deepest level, we've got a problem as human beings, and that is we are leaving our future to an arrangement in which money, power, or glory, or some combination of these three is what funds the life of the mind. That's dangerous because it is very hard to break free from unhealthy ideologies if the architects of those ideologies are the ones who are paying the bills and paying the salary for the, you know, for the professors, right? So what I was trying to say in this, in this piece is that the only thing that can help us in our society is to have an academically free place that follows the way of Jesus where you reject money, power, and glory. And then I say, and then this is, let me just read the, the epitome again. I say, if an academically free space is possible in society, I, I, I italicize if, because I'm not sure, you know, I'm leading up to the idea that I'm not sure it can be. It can only exist at a Christian university. I believe this with all my heart. Permit me to explain. Now, part of what's going on there, this is not for the general consumption. This is, this is me zigging when they think I'm going to zag within a conservative uh, world. If you are in the context of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and you hear me saying this, that hopefully or probably would have surprised you. Because um, anybody who knew me realized I was increasingly feeling claustrophobic within this space. So they were expecting me to say, we need to get more liberal. We need to be less confessional. You know, that's what you would expect me to say. But I'm actually saying, no, uh, what, what the, where the game's at is freedom within the Christ, Christian space. But it's the, com- the permit me to explain part that I, I feel, I guess if there's any retraction, I wouldn't have said it exactly like that for the sake of outsiders. I was speaking to insiders, and I think it was a, I was a, I was being provocative. I was being ironic. I was being maybe all too clever, but um, I do believe in it with all my heart. If you allow me to define what the Christian university is, which I say in the subsequent lines, only in the context of unconditional love can we have any reliable epistemic access to anything. What I mean by this is, 
if you deal with the problems of knowledge or logic or whatever, the reason we have a breakdown in society where you can't just present facts to people, uh, it just doesn't work. Right, left, whatever you're at. Uh, people, apparently, you can see it now, they don't care about the facts. Uh, just don't care. You know, so what's the only way to overcome this um, set of cognitive biases? The answer is love. And I'm not saying this in some cheesy way. I'm saying if I love creation, if I love other human beings, then I'm going to have a different stance when it comes to judging the evidence for climate change. Right. But if I'm controlled by money, power and glory, I'm going to have other biases as I as I address climate science. So how do I get past this? I need, I need love. Love is the only thing that could overcome those other um, constraints or pressures. And I say this is true in understanding our own hearts. So of course it's the case when we ask whether the earth is on fire or old or whether its structures are ordered justly. Only in a context that is unhindered by the demands of mammon, that's like the love of money, can true research flourish with integrity in the arts and sciences. I can't get into all of it, but uh, my, my friend David Anderson um, is, uh, is working on a book on a, a, a philosophy of science. and um, he, Our relationship goes back to uh, Oxford. We were friends at Oxford, but we both were previously from Concordia, Irvine. And... Um, and he does a really good job of outlining um, in his work the various ways in which um, research is affected by the kind of the, the economy of the academy. And specifically, and others have pointed this out, of course, that um, the problem with scientific research is that if we fail or that's one way of thinking of it, if we do some research and we find that there is no significant effect of this chemical on our health, positively or negatively, there's not really an economic incentive to publish that or to promote that. There's not a lot of economic incentive to go back and re, um, to rerun studies to confirm them or, you know, to, to, to double check them. So, I mean, there's, there's just all sorts of ways in which our research, and, and we can see this today in sciences and so forth, our research is so controlled by the economic factors that sometimes we lose sight of the truth, right? And then I say only in an, un, an academic context unfazed by secular intellectual tyranny can true inquiry related to uh, the pursuit of goodness, truth, and beauty thrive. In other words, and this is the key part, a Christian university is one that follows Jesus, Jesus even when the way of Jesus contradicts the influential authorities that rely on money, power, or religious magic. The only problem is I don't know if a perfectly Christian university is possible in our present age. And that's really, if you get that, that's what I'm kind of after. I was kind of saying, yes, I understand the concept. I believe that in theory, this is the only groovy thing that it's worth really pursuing. But ultimately, the reason I destroyed my career, the reason I just like just scuttled it is that I realized that it's not possible because the tentacles of Molech have reached into church-related higher education in a way that I find really, really terrifying and, 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 and frightening and problematic. And that is what's really going on is that people who do not like 
the idea that we should have diversity and freedom and um, uh, authentic gender expression, any, anything like this, the, the way that they are getting around these Im- important emancipatory changes in society is using the cloak of religion to create an alternate world of, of thought where um, it's like this parallel universe where all of the things that society is figuring out about science and gender and psychology, we could, if we want to, say yes or no to it. And we can say no to it, not because we're, we're ignoramai, but because we are faithful religious people. And that sounds good if you want to preserve your religion, but what I think is really going on is capitalism. That is, I don't, you know, like if you go to the, the Reformation, one of the things that was important for this guy, Philip Melanchthon, was to say, you can't end the monasteries, you can't get rid of the monasteries and then throw the monks and nuns onto the street, right? Like that would not be just. So, you know, I'm, I'm feeling this acutely. I am in financially worse shape than I was when, you know, I was working within the church-related system. I could have had like fine, fine prospects within that world and retired comfortably. And I'm not really going to be able to do that in any time soon. But therefore, I think if you care about this, it would be important for, for everybody of goodwill to find ways to repurpose church-related universities to help them to transition from being kind of these anti-intellectual enclaves to being places that are indeed alternatives in the spirit of love and compassion and even could have all sorts of wonderful spiritual practices within that space. But um, I really believe that it is, it is actually a life and death matter for American society, the world too, but just look at America because I think it's a specific problem in America because a lot of these church related schools uh, have served as a way, especially in the South, you know, like Liberty university and Bob Jones. These have been places for people to opt out of social justice uh, and uh, desegregation and, um, and all of this, right. And changes in, in the intellectual world. Um, the fact is, there are a lot of wonderful people that I know, and I have known at many church-related schools, that just don't buy it. In fact, if I go back over most of my academic career, with the exception of the Lutherans, where it does seem that the religious people at the Lutheran schools tend to be true believers, most of the time when I deal with kind of Christian universities, the people that are biblical scholars and theologians do not believe what the traditions that sponsor them think they believe or hope they believe by and large. Um, just, but people are stuck there because these little kids were brought up and they were like, wow, you're smart. So you go on and you can, you can go to like VBS and you can teach VBS and oh, you're so good at this. And eventually they keep getting praised and supported all the way up through the highest levels of uh, the academy And then they are put into these teaching positions and it's wonderful. Everything's normal. Everything's like normally being a a normal professional academic, except for you have to deny things that you believe are obvious. And that torment, okay, is not something that just screwed with me. This is something that screws with a lot of people around the country. Go ahead and research like you could use Yelp or something. I don't know. Look at look at your map. Probably wherever you're sitting, if you're in the North American continent, especially if you're in the United States, 
there may be two or three Christian or, you know, colleges or universities, church-related universities, and, um, and there are probably a lot of kids from your neighborhood that go to those places, even if they're not Christians, because they want to play volleyball or soccer or, you know, be on the baseball team or they just wanted to go to a college near their friends, but they maybe, you know, for whatever reason, didn't either fit into or couldn't get into the, the, the university next door. Now, what this is doing is it is creating a world in which those church-related schools require two things. They require tuition, and that's generally a good thing in the sense that it keeps them from being as wacky as they could be because sometimes parents, you know, say, well, I'll let my kids go to this church-related school as long as it's not too heavy-handed, right? Like, maybe they'll take a class or two, but, you know. Everybody knows somebody who went to a Catholic high school just because it was a good option educationally nearby, but they're not Catholic, right? So you think of it in those ways, but the amount of ideology that's being kind of promoted um, and, the, and the way that their, their minds are being molded is funded by partly that tuition, but also partly rich people's donations, rich people who want to get young people to understand that Jesus wants to keep the status quo. Like that's the game. So if I can, if I can convince a whole generation of kids that go to Christian colleges, that Jesus loves capitalism, then even though their lives are being like sapped of joy by a system that is not only painful for for the people in the like lower classes, but really traps mid-level managers and even rich people in a world that is, is debilitating and, and, and not conducive to their joy and freedom. If you can see that, and this is, this is part of the big picture, I started this whole journey trying to understand this thing I was calling Molech, the, the kind of the, the dominator deity of, of violence and, and cruel power. I was trying to understand how that, um, like was affecting the world uh, really from 2016. I was, I was kind of looking at this and I realized that in many ways, this unholy alignment, uh, alignment between the super wealthy and uh, church related schools was affecting America. And it was affecting America in a way that now you had a large percentage of human beings on this planet that are also voters and not understanding uh, as far as I can see it, reality. So here's the deal. In the course of my research, around this time, uh, my late son, oldest son, Augie, was helping me really dig into an important um, philosophical influence on Martin Luther, and that is uh, William of Ockham. And I must confess, I didn't really understand Occam and, uh, until Augie really kind of showed me uh, some of the interesting things that he was doing. But most importantly, it was this weird idea that maybe doesn't seem so weird to us, is that Occam called the Pope a heretic. And Luther at first, of course, doesn't do this. If you look at the 95 Theses, Luther is trying to say, well, the, the Pope must not know what kind of corruption is going on. It, there's a rhetorical and political value to that. But what I realized as, as my aha moment 
was that the content of the Lutheran uh, confessions is one thing that's interesting and helpful. And, uh, and in many ways, I think in the context of late medieval uncertainty about the love of the divine, the Augsburg Confession, for instance, is a vast improvement. You know, I love it. <laughs> Basically, you're saying God's not out to get you. I think that's interesting and helpful. Um, the the idea of love triumphing over um, judgment, forgiveness, grace. Uh, the idea of unconditional love. The idea of... Um, people's spirituality really being tied to their callings in life. That is in, in this emerging Lutheran way of thinking that instead of going off and being a monk and being kind of unhelpful for society, you serve God by serving your neighbor. Oh, that's beautiful. And you find your joy in not being a servant to the priesthood, but in this idea of the priesthood of all believers, people worshiping um, the holy through being great at their craft and their art. I mean, like, that's great. And so it, it sanctified this, this movement of the, of the confessional Lutherans. It sanctified everyday life. It is in some ways kind of like Jodo forms of um, Pure Land Buddhism in Japan. Um, where you don't have to go, like, again, you don't have to be a monk. You, you work out your bodhisattva kind of flow in the everyday things that you do, right? So this, to me, is really, really helpful for Western civilization, no doubt, and for um, intellectual history. And so, uh, again, what I was trying to do in this lecture uh, called Standing Boldly, How Lutheran, Ap uh, Lutheran Epistemology Made True academic liberty possible, it, it basically was doing what I think uh, Dostoevsky is trying to do with the Grand Inquisitor piece of um, the Brothers Karamazov, which is to show how if Jesus were alive today, it's, we think about this as maybe more commonly acceptable than it was at the time. When, when Dostoevsky wrote this, but if Jesus came back today, the Grand Inquisitor would would sentence him to death for not um, accepting money, power, and glory—the three things that that doom the world and doom human civilization. So, again, you know, when I look back at this this uh, talk I gave, it was uh, again it was an attempt to be provocative, sincere, and coy all at the same time. I'm not sure if it's possible to pull off things in that way, but in a way, you know, I don't really care. I was having some fun with it, and it helped me to break free myself. It's a little self-indulgent in that way, but it's also something of a manifesto to other Christian university professionals. That is, if, if you really look at the boldness of the original authors and signers of the Lutheran Confessions, they were... Um, they're moving in the way of free thinking. We don't have to agree with everything they thought about, like the humors and the blood or leeching or something to recognize their boldness. They reimagined their faith. They reimagined the economic system. They reimagined political structures. They may not have imagined, reimagined it well enough. They might not have been radical enough, but they were following 
individual conscience. They were defying the church in the name of Jesus. And that, to me, cannot be lost. That is the thing that I wish all Christian universities, specifically, God bless them, Lutheran Christian college um, kids would learn, is not just to uh, accept the dogmas of that tradition, but to accept the way that those dogmas got to be there in the first place, which was boldness, which was, um, which was risk, which was called heresy, which was, which was called, uh, breaking the rules, you know? So in that spirit, I stand by that spiritual lineage of, uh, deconstructing and subverting the system in the name of something good, true, and beautiful. And if there were an educational system that was able to recognize the autonomy and agency of each learner, uh, if it were a situation where it refused fundamentally to diminish or harm their intellectual agency, uh, even for the sake of the dogma that you know, backs the, the tradition, then that's a place I could support. But as I said, you know, um, you have to keep at this. The church that is reformed must keep reforming is, uh, is an old statement uh, and a true statement. And yet we tend to say, all right, well, this was the revolution that, that grandma was a part of, and now we're just going to like calcify that. We're going to keep that stuck. Um, but I'll tell you this, um, the idea of Occam uh, that we live in a world that is so sometimes confusing and complicated um, and so filled with these big systems that, that dominate our thought, um, the idea of just that immediate, pure sincerity of believing what you believe as opposed to believing for somebody else that is so important and it's not just an important lesson and in skill to learn in life if you're in a religious world it, it could be in a political world it could be your, your business place the people that really do something powerful and, and meaningful in this life where, wherever they find themselves whatever station they find themselves in the, the people that do something powerful are those who think what they think they should think. These are people who do what they know they should do. And these are people that are committed to following their conscience, letting their conscience be their guide, not somebody else. And there's a lot of people that want to do our thinking for us. And they're not just religious people. They are the, the people that, that are in charge of money and power as well. So if you can dis describe a space where you can evade the, not only the biases, but the, the pressures of money and power and glory. And if you want to call that a Christian university, I stand by the idea that only a Christian university is uh, going to be able to save civilization. But of course, that word Christian has been co-opted by money, power, and glory. That's the sad paradox that we find ourselves in. And so it may be that we need to renounce the name for the sake of the spirit, because the spirit is um, a very wholesome one, that each human being, to use the language of Christianity, is the body of Christ.
they are the embodiment of that spirit of what what Jesus' original movement was about, this liberation, this emancipation from mental slavery. And if we recognize that each individual human being is the presence of the presence, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ, the manifestation of the alternative kingdom, then, then if we foster that, this is the only hope for this world uh, that is careening towards doom. This is the only way to find friends, peace upon peace. That's what we wish for you. Thanks for listening. Be well. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP. And rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.